Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome to another episode of Better Words. Welcome back. How are you, Caitlin? I'm great. I am in a very me fashion. (laughs) Um, Some of my family is visiting Sydney this week and we went to Australia's Got Talent filming last night. We're going to Moulin Rouge tomorrow night and Mary Poppins on Thursday. So all the shows. (laughs) Sounds like so much fun though. Yeah, but it's very me and my family, isn't it, Michelle? Yes, it is. I love (laughs) that. I love that for you guys. (laughs) That's excellent. Um, Also, we've finally given in to the chaos that is our lives and decided that we're just doing a recommendation for the rest of the season because we can't coordinate reading books anymore. Oh, my Uh, God, we can't. So just in case anyone was, like, anxiously waiting to hear what our next book club (laughs) pick was going to be, which I'm sure you weren't, but, yeah, we're not doing it. But that means double the recommendations, though. So It does. Yeah. It actually is better for all of you listeners. So, Michelle, I think you have – it's almost a second recommendation, I think, because this is a recommendation you got from someone else. Am I right? Yes. This is a recommendation that I got from our mutual friend, Mel, who is at A Cozy Reader and A Cozy Reader Designs on Instagram. You should go check her out. She has the cutest bookmark designs. So sweet. Anyway, when we were in Sydney, we were all meant to meet up. Um, Mm. But because you were sick, I just met up with her anyway. And we had a lovely dinner. It was very, very nice. It was lovely to meet her in person. Anyway, she had previously messaged me about this book called Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone by Benjamin Stevenson. And I was like, yep, I've been seeing it everywhere. I really should read it. And she reiterated that recommendation again in person. And I, having no self-control, bought it at the airport on the way home and started reading it. And it took me a little bit longer than I would have liked to finish it just because of trying to fit in other books. Just chaos. Yeah. Um, I think if I'd been able to just like solidly sit down and read it, I would have raced through it a little bit more because it's very addictive. Um, But yes. Solid recommendation, really enjoyed it. It is described as Agatha Christie meets Knives Out. I think that's probably a fairly accurate description. I personally really enjoy like fourth wall breaks in movies and I don't know if that's what the name is in books, but whatever that technique is, I enjoy it. (laughs) And I really like that from the narrator of this book as if it's all like true. Um, And I guess that's kind of similar in a way to True Crime Story by Joseph Knox that I recommended ages ago. I mean, that's all like found pieces of evidence, but it's still like presenting it as if it's a real thing. And this is sort of presented as a bit of a memoir, like the person's writing it all out. Like I really enjoy that. That's kind of of a cool structure. Like someone Mm -hmm. is telling you the story of like all of these things that's happened in their family. And the thing is, at the start, he tells you that he will not be an unreliable narrator um, (laughs) because he writes 
books about writing mystery books. So it brings in all the rules of writing mystery books. Ah. And he's very explicit being like, in fact, the pages that people are going to die on are da, 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 da. And, like, is, I think that's very clever. Like, it's very. That's quite fun. Yeah. yeah I suppose that's because I haven't read it. And to be honest, I hadn't, you know, read the blurb or, like, you know, looked it up or anything. But I, like many people, have been seeing heaps of stuff on Instagram. And I know that everything like a lot of the photos on Instagram and in the promotion and everything has been that sort of like red string, like, Mm -hmm. you know, detective wall thing. So that makes complete sense now. (laughs) Yeah. I think you would really like it because you told me you've watched Knives Out multiple times. So I I do like Knives Out. It's not a classic like murder book. Like it's very clever in that way. It's very entertaining in that way as well yeah um, I think yeah because yeah, like really you know it. you know I'm not a massive crime reader or like a crime me person but I quite I liked Knives Out because it's like clever and you're like oh it's like Cluedo like what's gonna happen mm-hmm. or like or like I love a heist movie which I think is probably yeah. sort of in that like Very how similar. did it work what actually happened like that sort of stuff but as well. also like a little bit like when a heist movie knows it's a heist movie yeah like like there's a great episode of Rick and Morty where they do a heist and it's like they make a heist machine and then the machine is like sentient. Then it's like they're trying to outmaneuver each other and it's all a parody of like all the heist movies. Oh. It's very funny and clever in the way that Rick and Morty is. Yeah. But it's it's obviously so, so much a take on what happens in these films that now sometimes Jack and I watch a, a real movie and we're like, oh, this is just like a heist episode. It's like a classic movie. trope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a heist yeah. Movie. yeah. That's it's very funny. clever. So it does like obviously go through all the rules of writing detective fiction. Yeah. You know, like Agatha Christie style and stuff. I can't remember if you've read Thursday Murder Club. No, I haven't yet. Okay. It's being compared to that. Okay. I don't think it quite is the same because well it's trying to do a different thing yeah it's a different it's a different technique for me Thursday Murder Club like you fall in love with the characters as well as the story whereas this I could take or leave the characters but I found the narrative style very interesting I was intrigued Mm. and it was much more plot driven I think whereas Richard Oseman's are much more like it feels like a hug in a book. Like the characters are really lovely as yeah, well. Yeah, that's more part that of it. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for me, they're sort of, I don't like comparing them also because I adore Richard Oseman, <laughs> as you know. But like for me, it doesn't feel quite fair to compare them because they are different things, yeah. different styles. Um, I mean, Richard Oseman does write, it is the person writing down what happened in like a journal sort of thing a little bit um but it's not self-aware in the way of like this is like I'm not gonna lie to you I'm gonna tell you the truth and this is what usually happens in detective fiction and I told you this or it'll be like I told you that there was going to be a clue that's coming up soon or you know you might be wondering this but I'm just going to put this in here because my editor told me to but I'm not actually going to find out for two pages like (laughs) That stuff's yeah. pretty fun. Yeah, I think it's very clever. So I think that you should check it out. Um, and, you know, seconding Mel's recommendation to me, 
um, really enjoyed it. Awesome. My recommendation is very, very different (laughs) Um, as it always is, but mine is Now That I See You by Emma Batchelor. And I actually saw Emma speak at Newcastle Writers Festival. Um, I did go for work. So I got, I saw the second half of that panel um, as I was, you know, running around doing other things. Um, But she was on a panel called Family Ties, I think. Um, with Mimi Kwa and Chrissy Keene. And so they were all talking about writing about their family and their people in their real life and how that affected their writing and how, like, you know, how they felt when they read it and, like, all of these things, um, which is a really interesting discussion. Always love hearing about that. Absolutely. But the interesting... And we often, we've asked people this on the podcast too when we know Yeah, totally. Like, where did the story come from? All these things. But the thing I think is really interesting about Emma's book is that the other two panellists had written, like, they were memoirs. Um, And even in fiction, people say, oh, this is, you know, inspired by a story my grandmother told me or you know, I think this character is a lot like my sister or blah, 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 blah. Or a lot of, you know, there's kind of that joke that everyone's first novel is almost autobiographical because, like, Mm. you write what you know and all of those things. But literally in the blurb of Now That I See You, it is autofiction and Emma hardly changed any names. So... So, like, what makes it fiction then? I'm so interested. I don't know. I read the blurb for this. I didn't, I'd never heard of that term before. So, I've never heard of autofiction yeah. either. And I think it's, I don't know how, like, I, I don't know how that line is drawn. And I guess maybe the writing style doesn't, it's not a memoir or something, but like, it could be. Like, if you call it a memoir, like, we could just call it a memoir. But, it's very interesting because the whole book is like written by our narrator and she's not named as Emma until the last page, but, um, but even the, you know, the dedication at the start is like for the real Jess. And then immediately it's like, Jess and I like, blah, blah, blah. Um, and if you read the back, you know that it's about Emma and her relationship, but Mm. it's all in like, journal entries, diary entries, emails she's written to other people, but never the other way around. So all of it is from her perspective and what she has written, which is quite interesting, which is also lends to the fiction question. Like there's never an email back from Dress or a message back from anyone else. It's all her outwards, which I think is quite interesting because it really is all about her experience in this story. Which but then- I- so is memoir. Like yeah, that's, I agree. it's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated. Like I wanted, I want. I know. know. I need to look up some more interviews yeah. and podcasts and stuff with her. I think probably, to hear a bit more about have done this. Some more research before, but I did do a little I'm bit of research because after I finished it, I wanted to know. I was like, well, oh, yeah. I wasn't saying that in a. I, I was just meaning like. <laughs> you know, I know. I want to do more. Like, though. Oh, I wonder. Yeah, yeah I want to do more though to hear a bit more about yeah. the story because it's very like moving and quite powerful to read because I've been talking all about this and in case oh, anyone yeah. so doesn't tell know, us about the so, book. <laughs> now that I see you follows Emma after her partner of several years Jess comes out as transgender 
So it follows their relationship mainly over about two years after, like right as this and then as they're dealing with this new situation. Um, But there are some flashbacks to when they were first getting together and things like that. Um, But when the book ends, they are not together. And so I Googled it (laughs) Um, because I was like, oh, what happens? Um, And, you know, in publicity and other interviews and everything, Emma is quite open about the fact that they – during the first sort of lockdowns in 2020 and everything, they were separated and she was living alone during lockdowns and everything. And then at some point in 2020, they like ran into each other again and were like, no, we definitely are happier together than apart. And I suppose Jess had had some time to transition and find herself a bit more and, you know, all of that. And now they are still working on their relationship and everything, but they're together and working on their lives as two women, which I think is amazing. And I'm I'm like, after reading it, I'm like, I'm so happy for you. (laughs) Like, ah, be in love, be happy. Um, But it's a really, it's a very, it's obviously a very interesting situation to read about Mm -hmm. when you think about what happens to what was a heterosexual couple when, something like you know when something like this happens and this is someone's true identity but it's so powerful to read and I think it is really interesting to read from the perspective of someone's partner not from someone going through a transition or discovering their identity or you know that sort of situation obviously those stories are very important and should also be told and are very interesting I can't think of another TV show or movie or book or anything that gives as much light to the other side of a situation like that. Like even in like any teen show where, you know, one of our main characters might have a boyfriend or girlfriend and then realize that they're not attracted to that gender and they come out or, you know, all of that. I feel like even in situations like that, there's never as much light given to the well, I had a boyfriend, but now he told me he's gay. And so now we're just broken up. Like, yeah. yeah. So it's very, um, it's really quite moving to read from Emma's perspective. Yeah. So did she identify as like heterosexual before? Yeah. And so in the book, she does journal about it and like writes about how she talks about it with other people and thinks about it. Um, And In the book, at least, Emma doesn't decide on a label, but obviously researchers being pansexual. Um, But ultimately, the as obviously as the book is very much in it, as they're figuring out everything and the process of Jess not only coming out to her, but then to her family, to her friends, other people in their life, it is always just about Jess for Emma, our narrator. Um, So Mm. it's... It's a really, like, beautiful book to read and it's so, like, it's so quick and, like, the because it's journals and emails and everything, the date and the month and everything is there and I sort of had to be like, oh, my God, like, you've read two and a half years or something of her life by the time you're at the end of the book and it's not that long. Wow. Like, the actual book. That sounds so good. But, yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah, that sounds amazing, really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So, yeah, two very different recommendations, always the case from us. <laughs> Incredibly different recommendations. Um, and should we 
let everyone in on the secret that that was meant to be our book club book. So it was going to be our book club book and, you know, for everyone thinking, oh my God, Michelle didn't even read it like Slack. No, that's not what happened, obviously. Just I the chaos. I it out from the library and I really wanted to read it, but it just, I... And yeah. when we abandoned it, the like book club idea... I hadn't even started it. I just was like, well, I still don't know what I'm going to recommend, so I'll just read it. Like, Yeah, yeah. But and also it's I'm funny. I'm so glad it's we funny... chose it because otherwise it might have been a, a lot longer before I got around to reading it and I really liked it. Yeah, I think I definitely will read it because um, I've got it out from the library already. I just think as well like we're sort of at that point of doing the podcast for this season where I'm rebelling against myself and <laughs> – we select books to read and then I'm like, no, nah, I don't feel like reading that. I'm going to start something else. I know, right? <laughs> but, yeah, it just has been a hectic few weeks and I'd already finished uh, this other book. So, um, yeah, yeah I, it's just happened, I was like, guys. let's just do recommendations. Say, the pile of books that I want to read as soon as we're done recording and interviewing for this current season. Oh, man, I'm excited. I've got some good ones from work. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I'm such a mood reader anyway that, like, yeah. I was – and I think when, when you're stressed and stuff as well, like – Oh, even just, more so, hey. Yeah, you're like, like I, I don't want to read a serious book. I want to read something different and I don't have to think about it or whatever. So, yeah, yeah but that does sound like an amazing book um, and I will read it. So that's our recommendations. And now time for another awesome interview, which is why you're all actually here. <laughs> Enjoy. Our guest today has written for national magazines and broadsheets in the UK and worked in the publishing industry for the last decade. She's edited and represented countless bestsellers, including some of the book industry's most prominent voices. She was nominated for Literary Agent of the Year 2020 at the British Book Awards and is an intersectional feminist campaigner who co-founded the campaign This Doesn't Mean Yes, which was covered in the media internationally. She lives in London with her boyfriend and her Italian greyhound, Luca. Today, we're discussing her debut novel, What a Shame. Welcome to Better Words, Abigail Bergstrom. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for that lovely um, intro. It always makes me laugh because my boyfriend's always like, how come the dog gets a name check, but I don't? What's that? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, and look, we both really enjoyed the book, but I have to be completely honest with you, and this is becoming quite a funny thing between Caitlin and I. I probably, if I if we had not booked this chat in, I probably wouldn't have finished the book right now because mm. it does deal quite heavily with grief. Yes. And not only that, but it deals with the loss of her dad. And my dad died last year, but it's becoming quite ironic because like we keep picking up books and then halfway through I'm like, oh my God, Caitlin, like, because my dad was quite elderly. So I'd be like, oh my God, someone's grandma died. Or like this one, I was like, how have we done it again? Yeah. Or like, <laughs> just... oh my God, half the book is about like dealing with your aging parents and all these things. And we keep accidentally doing it where we're like, wow, this book sounds so interesting. Female shame or like vampires <laughs> or a YA romance. And it's still in there. The universe um, pushing you to kind of yeah grapple and engage but it's hard it's interesting that I I think I've definitely had feedback from people saying they're grieving for a parent and they've had to stop reading but I've also had people 
come back and say that they read it at the exact perfect moment because they were grieving for their parent and they found it mm. like the depictions of grief really helpful. So that is interesting. I think for some people it's been it's been soothing and for others it's you know as you say Might maybe perhaps soon maybe. Yeah. yeah but I just probably would have put it I would have taken a bit longer because I kind of um I, I read it quite quickly and I think I would have taken a little bit longer, taken a few more breaks if we didn't have this booked in. But I do think it was quite soothing because, yeah, just your descriptions of certain feelings and certain things just feels so spot on. And I really did appreciate that as well. So I do want to say it was yeah. wonderful. But, yeah, it's just one of those things that keeps coming up and Caitlin and I keep, like, messaging each other about it. It's like a cosmic joke at this point. It's like <sighs> we keep doing it. Um, so yeah, it is getting quite funny at this point. Um, but it was, yeah, like just, there were certain lines in there. And I think, look, honestly, the one that like, I had quite a good relationship with my dad, but I think like seeing any parent age is really hard and learning things about them that maybe you don't agree with. And that line that I ended up like taking a picture and sending it to Caitlin being like, Oh my God, was, um, you know, no one is all good or all bad. And I just was like, I need to just stop and like read that multiple times. Like it was really wonderful. So yeah, there was a lot to be soothing in it as well. Um, so we've been quite cryptic in talking yes, about we've the book, totally but... gotten ahead of ourselves. Um, and <laughs> yeah. first asked you, Abigail, to tell us a bit about the book. Okay. A bit about the book. So what a shame, in essence, I think, is about the utter devastation of heartbreak and grief. Um, and the lead protagonist, Matilda, um, she's just kind of, she's going through what, what's been a very sudden and unexpected breakup. Her heart is completely broken. She's just, as we've discussed, her father's um, recently passed away. And so she's dealing with these two very different griefs yeah. at the same time. Um, and she kind of gets thrown into this house of women. There's this kind of group of, of young women that come together and are all living in the same house, um, but in ways that are quite kind of jarring and unexpected. None of them really thought they would be at that point in their life. And they all kind of haven't quite met their expectations in where they should be and what they should be doing. But um, for Matilda, it's an incredibly kind of healing experience. And these women push her into these various uh, new age rituals and um, spiritual ideas to help her kind of grapple with what it is she's dealing with. Um, and I think in terms of in terms of grief, I really wanted to write a book that dealt with the more, I would say, uncomfortable and sticky part of grief, whereby it's not imminent, it hasn't just happened, it's not that part where everyone knows to come around you, to come over, show up with flowers, you know, we have rituals, like funerals, and you feel very held and very supported, but I think ultimately the person who is grieving, it, it, it it's always going to take them a lot longer to get over and to heal and recover, and there's this awkward kind of clunky moment around grief in our society, I think, where people are sort of like, right, come on, come on now it's been it's been nine months mm. it's been a year or it's kind of time to move forward and, and for Matilda she's stuck she's completely stuck and and stagnant and unable to and the book is about mm. her unraveling herself and really kind of understanding why but I think that moment in time in grief is I hope very relatable and just something like like a lens through which I don't think grief is explored as much. That's true, because the whole book is in that sort of awkward middle part. And her yeah. friends are sort of saying to her, especially about the breakup, like, 
come on, you know, you know it's time. Get, get back out there and all these things, yeah. Like yeah. her, she's like wears the same dungarees all the time. Because, yeah. you know, affecting a bit of a depression as well, you know, and her friends are like, Jesus Christ, can you please just wear something else that you're bringing us down? We can't look at those dungarees anymore. And it's that, you know, there's these little things where, yeah, I think she's her, she's being pushed to move on when she's not quite ready. But at the same time, I think, we, that's completely necessary in life in order to push us forward. We need to be pushed out of our comfort zone and challenged and nudged along in order to really recover in, in a way. So as the title suggests, the book also deeply explores this concept of female shame um, and in different aspects as well. And it's not, you know, all the time throughout the book, but you do bring it in there in certain parts, especially towards the end. But I'm really curious, like, what drew you to writing about shame in this way? Um, I guess similarly to grief, I wanted to write about female shame in a way that I personally haven't seen it represented or explored too too much. Um, in 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 the sense of, I think we are very aware of how we're shamed in society by the media about homogenous expectations of women and how a woman should be. There are the, you know, within uh, relationships and gender norms and expectations and all of that kind of toxic narrative that comes out of being in a patriarchy. I think we're acutely aware of those more robust and on the surface ways in which we are shamed as women. But for me, I felt like there is this kind of burning prickly heat under the surface shame that is so ubiquitous and that all women have. I feel like it's a complete connection point and it just bubbles, just bubbles, bubbles, bubbles within us, under the surface, under the skin. And it's so kind of present that we're not even really conscious of it anymore. It almost feels like it's just normalized. It's just part of the experience. Yeah. And that was the shame that I wanted to get into and unpick and talk about. And I just find, I don't know, whenever I have a glass of wine with a woman, be her a close friend or a, I don't know, a relative, a colleague, a client, you often stumble into this kind of shape-shifting shame. I th- what I, I think is shame, I think shame's the best word to put, put, to put to it. So yeah, that was, that was the intention. I feel like you did that so well, that like every day... <laughs> completely normalized thing that you're just like this is just what it is being a woman's hard like all of that stuff and it is I mean it just sucks but like yeah I feel like you've phrased it quite well explaining it then and I feel like the um I guess the best example of that for me in the book uh was her looking at the Instagram profile of someone who used to be her friend and like literally we've all been there we've all done it we all constantly do it and I yeah that that just really the way that you look at that life and then um without giving any spoilers some stuff comes to light later on that makes you realize obviously that yeah we're all sort of going through different things and it oh it's just such a it's such a false lens to look through but it is I think for a lot of us like the most obvious place where we start to feel shame because we've just seeing everybody else's lives enacted in a certain way I guess and it's like a yeah the highlight reel the glossy bits the bits that are going well the bits that are worthy of announcement of sharing you know unfortunately there isn't it's interesting actually because I do think younger 
generations of women, kind of Gen Z, are doing this a lot more in terms of sharing online when they're having a, uh, they're in a depression or they're feeling low or something bad's happening in their life. And I, I do find that really interesting. I think millennial women less so. I think we've been more ingrained and kind of brainwashed that social media is about presenting your best self. And, and also kind of even the structure of how we've gone into employment more traditionally whereas gen zers tend to be working for themselves and have different expectations around employment i think there's that awareness i wouldn't say worry but but awareness of like how one conducts oneself in an appropriate way in an appropriate manner and it not being kind of professionally sound to share too much or go you know be go into things in a too personal a way so i think all of that is really interesting like to what extent are we showing the truth and how comfortable do we feel about our own projection and how true that is to what's really happening and our individual relationship with that. But in the book, I guess, Matilda's looking at it from the perspective of this other woman seemingly having everything that she thought she would have. It's almost a an apparition or a projection of the life that she was on course to have and was completely knocked off. That's, you know, looking at it is kind of painful, but titillating. And at the same time, it's bringing up these questions of like, well, is that really what I wanted? Or is that, in a sense, what I'm conditioned to want, right? Even with Instagrams becoming so like, blanket format, everyone posts the same sort of selfies. And, you know, even cafes and certain hotels will create these Instagrammable locations, and people will go and Instagram the exact area. And, Instagram homes, our decor and our interiors are becoming samey, samey, samey because we're all, you know, it's creating this really strange, this really strange thing is happening. We're, we're, we're all kind of copying each other and um, mirroring yeah, each other. because we all want to show that when we do show things on social media, we want it to be nice. We want everyone to look at us the way we look at everyone else on social. It's so funny because a week or so ago... <laughs> My mum called me and just said, I'm just calling to check up on you because I've noticed you haven't been very active on Instagram or in the family group chat and I haven't spoken to you since you were busy last weekend or something. And I was just like, yep. And she was like, so you're stressed, aren't you? Like you're busy at work. And I was like, yep. (laughs) Like when it was, you know, a busy time or something, I was just putting nothing out there. Yeah, you withdraw. I'm the same. I'm the same. It's, It's almost like you don't. You don't have the capacity for it. Yeah, it's the first thing to go when there's like a lot going on, isn't it? And I find that as a, like, because I also have a small business as well with marketing. And I find that, especially with other business owners, you'll see them doing, and I I don't know whether you feel like this too, because we want to talk about you having your own business as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But you see other people like doing these sellout launches and all these things. But then, you know, you might actually speak to them in person and they're like, oh my God, sales are so slow or this has been a really hard month or whatever. And you're like, that is not what I thought from like your Instagram made it look like you are, you know, raking in the cash, you know, <laughs> and it's sort of a, it's like, I'm like, oh, I always feel a bit, there's a, there's two feelings that come up. I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry that you're feeling that way too, because I know it's shit, but also like, it's like, oh my God, it's not just me. Thank God. Like I'm not the only one. <laughs> yeah. What's relief. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like, that's where I think to sharing those things as well. And there is that that point in the book where they do the women's circle, and they do sort of share some things with each other. And I guess like just being able to put it out there, not expecting anything 
back from anybody, but just being able to share it and get it off your chest is usually such a relief for, for most of us when it comes to these things that maybe we're just internalizing Maybe we're, you know, hunched over our phone, <laughs> scrolling, thinking, oh, my God, why has this person got X, Y, Z that totally. I should have? Yeah. Um, and just vocalizing it even is probably a really good step to starting to unpick it a little bit as well. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the kind of Brene Brown, the shame expert, a definitive writer around shame. And it's that's the point of connection. The point in which you share and you're vulnerable and you're honest is the point at which people can truly meet you and where real connection happens, you know, and she talks about how shame hates having words wrapped around it. It's the thing shame hates most. And I thought that was so interesting. So then what then if you write a whole book about shame and you put that, what, what happens to shame then? And I think there is this this lifting, this lightness, this relief that comes when you pull your shame out of the dark and take it into the light, so to speak. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> we should definitely do that more. Yes. <laughs> I'm just sitting here being, yeah, fuck this. Like... <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, like, also you articulate it also well, because I assume that, you know, you have been thinking about this for a long time as you've been writing the book and as you've been going through it. So you're just like blowing our minds here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think, well, you know, I'm book tour. So it's, you're talking about these things all the time. Um, so yes, yeah, all of your thoughts are well formed. <laughs> yeah. <Thank> you. <laughs> um, so I understand that, you know, it, you in the past, um, I'm not sure of the timeline, sorry, but have experienced really bad burnout. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that has influenced your writing as well? Um, so where to start on that? The right, how it's influenced my writing is an interesting question that I've never been asked before. And it's difficult to say really, because I wrote What a Shame, probably finished it a year before COVID. And it took me about two years to write because I was running a literary agency at the time and, you know, managing a team and representing 50 plus international authors. So the only time I had to write was on the weekends, like on, on a Saturday morning, I would kind of schedule a few hours. And so it, it took me quite a long time to do. And then during COVID, I finally was brave enough to send the book out on submission and I sent that to, I sent it out anonymously under a pseudonym because I worked in publishing and I knew lots of yeah. people and had lots of contacts. And I just didn't know, it didn't feel right, didn't feel fair to send it out. I just kind of wanted that anonymity and for it to get picked up or not on the back of the writing and the writing alone and not because I, my pal at Penguin, you know, liked it. So, so I pick it for you, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I sent it under, under a pseudonym and my and secured an agent, which was amazing. Kate read the book in 24 hours and caught, emailed me the next day being like, oh my God, I want to represent this represent it's going to get on the phone. And bless her, that was awkward. Because then I had, to, she sort of said like, oh, you haven't said a lot about who you, you know, what you are. And, Je you know, Jessica Sharp was my pen name. Absolutely <laughs> awful. Um, and then I had to confess and that was like funny. I was like, oh, do you still want to represent me? Um, and, and then, yeah, a similar process with sending it out then. And and then it wasn't published until a year and a half after that. So I had burnout kind of second wave of COVID. So before the book published, but long after I'd written it. Mm. So I'm the second one now. All to say, 
it's really hard. I, I don't really know. But I definitely think running a business and writing a book alongside was part of it. I think there were definitely emotional elements and things that I was going through at the time in therapy that were part of it. And I also think kind of the demands that we put on ourselves, you know, burnout is so common, especially in, in you know, women, working, working professionals, um, mothers, I mean... And even worse, if you're within a situation where you're in a minority group, you're even more likely to experience burnout than statistically we know. And I think I just kind of gobbled the narrative on what a woman should be and tried to be and do it all and show up in my work and write a book and have extracurricular and spend time with my friends and work out four times a week and all of these things. And in the end, I just collapsed into myself. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't walk my dog I couldn't water my plants I couldn't work for half a year I mean it was terrifying I felt like I was trapped in an old woman's body and you know mentally I wasn't sad or low you know I didn't feel depressed I just physically could not do anything and that's a real um to drive your body to that you know to its limits of endurance to the extent where it stops because you won't is a huge wake up call. And, you know, that's part of, of why I left um, working in a more kind of traditional role in comp- uh, in publishing and within a kind of corporate environment. And I've gone and set up my own business, like to make more space for my writing as well. Um, I've had a, a few offers for the TV and film rights for What a Shame and I'm hopefully gonna be working on a screenplay and that's really exciting. So it's to make more room for that, but also so that I can work in a way that's healthier and more balanced and a lot you know a lot healthier for me so yeah I hope that answers your question it's so hard for me to talk about my burnout because it's so huge and unraveling and unfolding I feel like it's like a whole podcast episode in itself but yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely actually you know we we did want to talk a little bit more about your decision to move and start your own agency as well so let's just jump to that now um and and we can you know there's, there's no real structure here it's fine that decision like it sounds like on the surface, like, you know, in your bio, if you were to write what you were doing at the time, it would sound like you had it all and you had like, you're ticking all the boxes and like, you just. All so impressive. And then you just started your own business. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, that's such an impressive thing. It must be because she was so successful, but actually it was, it was because you were experiencing something that was like hugely traumatic. I mean, I hope that it's both. You know, yeah. I mean, as we well as totally being successful, yeah. obviously, but <laughs> yeah, you're, de- you're obviously incredibly good at what you do. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've worked in publishing for, you know, a decade now. I think I've earned my stripes. I don't think I would have been, in a, I, I definitely wouldn't have been in a position to be able to start this business had I not had that experience and done the, the jobs in-house that I'd done and all the rest of it. You know, I set up a literary agency for somebody else, for another company first. And then when that was successful, kind of went, hmm, okay, maybe I could do this for myself. But yeah, you're entirely right in terms of like the narrative of success. I mean, that's why, you know, I've, I've written about my burnout for the, for the Sunday Times and I very much talk about it a lot, especially when people ask me about writing a book alongside having a full-time job because... I just think it's so important to be honest that there's like a limited amount of eggs in the energy basket, shall we say. And, you know, if you use them all up, 
you're you're kind of fucked is the short answer and it's all very well and good to be like oh yeah I've written this book and I've done this I don't, but I don't think we talk about the sacrifices you know the sacrifices that I made when I was writing that book I worked all week and I and I wrote all weekend and you know that took its toll on my romantic life it took its toll on my friendships it took its toll on the amount of time I was getting to spend with my family like there is an exchange for these things and I don't think the exchange is spoken about people just want the gloss of success and the glamour of succeeding and actually I think success in this day and age because of all of the demands on us is quite grotesque and difficult to look at and painful and I, and I don't think we show that bit so much so yeah it's- it is particularly when people write books it's like and all of this and oh and where do you find the time to write a book and it's like yeah people don't talk about where they actually found that time yeah or alternatively like that it took them you know 10 years and it it was a very 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 slow process because they were trying to juggle everything for example yeah because there are very few people who are like full-time authors yeah. and full-time writers. The business I've set up is, um, it's called Bergstrom Studio. And it's a it's a publishing consultancy. And the aim is to help aspiring writers and help um, emerging writers find their voice and to effectively turn ideas into published books. And I also have a Substack as well that does the same thing because the one-to-one consultancies are a, a lot more expensive and it's not accessible for everyone. And so Substack's a really great way to share that information with more people at a, a more um an easier price but i always say to the writers that i work with like writing a book is not writing one book like get that out of your head oh, yeah. writing a book is like writing seven eight nine books that's what it takes the first draft is like vomit like a vomit of ideas a vomit of thoughts a vomit of plot structures and characters and you have to rewrite 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 I know there's a lot of writers that write their first draft, 80,000 words, and delete it. Click on a new page, start again from the beginning. And I think even this idea that you've written a book, you know, that it's from beginning to end, or this linear process, is so problematic because it's not the it's not the case. Um, so yeah, that's what like that's one thing again that I always say, and I don't think a lot of people really talk about. You know, I did 11 drafts of What Shane. It took me two two and a half years. Yeah, it oh, definitely, oh, like, work, we just don't it? talk about that stuff. Um, but I think, I think it's so interesting to hear you describe the success that we, I think especially women like our age, like millennial women, have been sort of brought up to strive for as yeah. grotesque because that's sort of something that, like that puts words to some of the feelings that I've been having and I think a lot of people probably have started to feel the same after the pandemic as well mm-hmm. um, and after being forced to slow down a little bit. And I've had this discussion with numerous friends of mine where I, you know, look at maybe what other people are doing in their businesses, for example, and think, oh, my God, that looks great. But I just that makes me tired. I don't have the energy for that anymore. And maybe I would have, but I just can't muster up the energy for that. And even like when I think about my old old life prior to moving to the UK I was working in what was an incredibly stressful uh very low paid job um and you know we started this podcast and I was studying at uni and I was like and it it was the same sort of thing as you described of just like pushing yourself and I didn't experience burnout the same way maybe because we moved overseas and I was like oh I'm just gonna be unemployed for a bit and it but but if I had kept going maybe it would have been the same way because I was definitely like 
pushing myself too much. Um, and I look back at that now and I'm just like, oh my God, like that, even thinking about it exhausts me. And I still feel like I do too much now and I do way less than I used to. <laughs> and I think it's it's hard when you are someone who, not to say that like, not to say that I'm a genius or anything like that, obviously, but like when you have, when you have creative ideas and you have, I think something I've been struggling with quite recently is trying deliberately trying to do less and to manage my time better and to manage it in terms of actively putting in rest, for example, but having lots of ideas that I want to act on and not necessarily having the patience to be like, it's okay, this will come. And I, I wonder if writers might feel like this too, of thinking like, oh, my God, I want to publish this book immediately. But you you just need time to work on it. You need time to go through all those drafts. And mm-hmm. I think we are, again, it's that comparison with other people and we think, oh, we're behind or we're not doing stuff. But, like, what are we behind? Why do we think we're behind? It's just, and it's, it's something that has been in my head recently. And I think I'm getting better at saying like, I'm not actually going to, I am going to just sit with the discomfort of having some patience and taking some time. But it's sad that in our society, it takes us having severe mental health problems or severe physical problems to actually realize that maybe what we've been striving for ever since we were you know in high school being told to strive for certain things is not really worth it yes you get you get to where you want to be I think in a a way um or achieve something that you've always wanted to achieve and you sort of lift your head above the parapet and you're like is this it like seriously is this is this is it is it really nothing else here are you sure it's a complete letdown because really these things are like they don't really mean anything right because our focus we because of capitalism and consumerism our focus has been put onto you know we're valued by our productivity that's why we feel like we're running out of time and we can't we we don't feel like we can sit and take time with our ideas and then as a result of that we're turning up we're turning our heads away from nature we're turning our heads away from human connection we're turning our heads away from like all of those things that actually matter that actually bring us joy and focusing on these constructed false things that then when we do achieve them actually are a little bit underwhelming yeah yeah they feel so hollow and it's a trick I think it's a trick and I think because it's that classic thing of like when you get to the top of the mountain it's like well there's the next one and you just gotta like keep going (laughs) so and it's oh my god it's a stupid system isn't it it's a stupid yeah. system. Yeah. Let's tear let's tear down capitalism <laughs> <laughs> in our spare time that we don't have because we've worked ourselves too much. Oh well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just on that on that as well. I was reading the piece that you wrote for L about like being in the in between and liminal spaces and stuff, and I really love that concept. I think because of all those thoughts that have been in my head at the moment of like, and, and probably because last year like when you know we said my dad died and it's it's interesting that you know you sort of mentioned that Matilda is going through two griefs with the loss of her relationship as well quite suddenly because I felt like I was going through two with like moving from England back to Australia and having to sort of say and it was very much that that in-between time of like oh my god like what am I doing Mm -hmm. and what's happening and do I have a job and do I have a business and yeah. everything's changing and it's yeah. a really odd space. Like. Thankfully, finally feel like I'm moving out of that a little bit, but I just, 
wanted to hear you talk more about that because I really enjoyed reading that and I would love you to sort of you know did any of that sort of make its way into what a shame as well um I mean I wrote that piece well you know a long time after what a shame I think what shame had gone to print even before that had been written so definitely not consciously um but but yeah I think it's true that Matilda is in a liminal state you know she's stuck in liminality and that you know the idea is sort of being in between these two chapters there's these chapters in our life or there's these things that we want to do or get to or these um identity pillars that hold us neatly in place for ourselves but also for other people be it you know nurse or engaged or homeowner or whatever you know and sometimes we can be in between all of these things and for for me when I wrote that piece I was in between homes I'd just given up my flat I was lodging in somebody else's home I was in between jobs I'd I'd sort of left Gleam where I'd set up uh, the literary agency but I hadn't yet kind of figured out what the hell I was going to do to make myself money Um, and I was in you know my relationship in a way was in a very weird uh, liminal state in the sense that we'd met right before lockdown and then suddenly the world had like reopened but you know we'd never done these simple things like gone to a wedding together or like gone to a club together or you know so many friends and family members we hadn't met yet we'd been together for like almost a year and a half two years it was crazy and it's very uncomfortable being in the in-between because we want to be sorted and set and we want the comfort of those things it's very much like you know, your, your, your Instagram bio, you know, like having those things there and knowing what they are and then bringing certainty, but like actually in the in-between there's this seemingly endless possibility because if you're not literary agent, then what are you? Maybe you're florist. You're like, who could I be? What could I be? And there's, there's suddenly this opportunity of like, well, maybe I don't want to go back into publishing. Maybe I just want to work at a bookshop and be a dog walker and live in the countryside and simplify my life. And out of liminality is fertile ground for possibility, for creativity. And it's actually an incredible place to be if you can sit and allow for the discomfort and not try and just pull your way through it and out of it. Because I think that's yeah, a... And not rush to the next thing. Yes. yes. And not try to avoid it completely by like staying in a relationship that isn't serving you or staying in a job that isn't serving you because it's really scary to be in the in-between and to not know what comes next. Exactly that. And I have a lot, I have a, I have a real fondness and actually almost like Uh, I don't know, like that part of my life now seems so freeing and beautiful and wonderful. And I had like, I feel really lucky that I got to have that. And I don't, you know, it's difficult, it's terrifying. How am I going to make money? How am I going to, you know, pay my rent or what have you? It can be really hard, but it was a really incredible time for me. And um, I feel grateful for it, even though I think sometimes when we're in those states, they can feel yucky. Yeah. Well, I actually really like that in in the novel because in What a Shame, Matilda is, in, as you said, in such that in-between space. But the group of women that she's living with, as you mentioned at the start, they all kind of have these things that they try and help her with. And so, you know, and like her friends do. And I find it so hilarious, you know, like one of her friends gets a dog and she's like, is this for me? And they're like, no. And like, and one friend books a tarot card reading and like, it's like, maybe it'll help. Like there's all these little things that I think, like, I just love all the things that they do 
to try and sort of help her along and help her understand or you know they just want her to think about some things I guess and that's what all of these little activities that throughout the book what they're for yeah and I also you know I also have a problem with the way that female friendship is like projected and sold to us as well on screens and in box sets Mm. It's kind of like group of four women, ride or die, no matter what. And you're like together yeah. forever. So much so that it's like... Yeah, cocktail, cocktails and then ice cream at midnight. Like... Yes, yes. <laughs> like Sex in the City, like remake. And them all still like being friends and hanging out and doing the same thing. And it's just, I don't think it's realistic. I don't think it's most women's experience of female friendship. I think it actually really simplifies and is reductive of female friendship. Yeah, I think friendship can be fleeting and complex and all of these different things sometimes you can have a relationship with a woman where like it is a really important transformative part of your life like Matilda and Ivy in the book and they drink ayahuasca together which is the kind of the world's most powerful hallucinogenic and mind-altering brew and it's you know she has a very difficult relationship with Ivy and they're not necessarily close or they don't naturally kind of meld with each other, but yeah. they go through something. And that's... like, they probably won't stay friends, you know? Like, no. we know that. Once they move out, they're probably not going to stay friends, but exactly. it was exactly. right for the time. Yeah, I think so. And there's those, I think there's, there are those friendships and we do have those powerful moments or chapters with women and they're just as important sometimes as that ride or die you know, who's with us thick and thin forever. And, you know, of course we have those as well, but I don't think it's as neat and tidy as it's made out to be. And I also mm. loved, is it Eden, the friend who lives in Paris and they send each other voice notes? I love yeah. that. Yeah, they were so fun to write. I wanted to have a relationship in the book that solely existed through voice note and kind of phone calls. And, you know, Eden is never actually present in the book um physically I, th- I, th- I think that's a way that you know a lot of us have long distance friendships long distance relationships or even just busy like your friends had a baby and you're really busy at work and suddenly like the voice note is the, the media in one form that's keeping the friendship going and- yeah everyone has a voice note friend yes, exactly yeah I push voice notes onto all my friends. But yeah, especially when you're friends in different time zones and stuff, it's the yeah. best. Yes. Love voice notes. It's a way of being in the intimacies of someone's day-to-day, you know? it's You can be in the day-to-day intimacies. And later on down the line, when you have a meltdown about the fact that you hate your job, your friend's like, yeah, do you know what? You've I've noticed over the last few, few months and this happened and you said this and do you remember that? And you're like, oh, that's really helpful. But if a friend doesn't have access to those like smaller you know, it's like that death by thing. thousand cuts. It's like the thousand cuts that the day to day they need to have access to in order to help be your friend. And um, I love those little, I'm, I'm, you know, those little intimacies. I want to know, like, what did you eat today? Like, who did you argue with at the post office and why? And what's your mother <laughs> That's super annoying, you know? I want all the little day to day tidbits because that's what oh, one of my friends in the UK was like, um when we were in lockdown and like they she was like shielding and stuff because she was pregnant she was like oh you went to the grocery store what did you get at the grocery store I just want to know what did you get at the grocery store so I'd be like yeah I'm gonna walk down to you know the co-op whatever on my lunch break and yeah I'd come back and be like so I got a meal deal with this sandwich and like some baked beans and like (laughs) it's just like so random but I do love that stuff and then you know I think it's totally okay too that we all also have friends that we won't speak to for like 
a year and then we'll catch up and it'll be great and we'll have a great chat but we don't have that intimacy of like the day-to-day stuff like that is also completely fine I think that's yeah again that like female friendships don't just have to be one certain way that we've been presented I think that's kind of Matilda and Georgia's relationship in the book as well you know like they've kind of their their closeness ebbs and flows and they've gone through stints where they've not hung out because they've had boyfriends that didn't get on or they've you know lived in different parts of the city or and then suddenly you know Matilda's life shifts and she needs somewhere to live and George's got a spare room and they're kind of thrown together again but it's almost like they've never really been apart because they can just go straight back into that intimacy and yeah so that, that that's, the, that's the beauty of friendship right I might not be able to see you for, for a couple of years but we'll get back in the room again have a cup of tea and everything's just the same as it was in so many ways. It's wonderful. Um, I just had that experience in Sydney as well, um, visiting a friend and I had not spent like proper time with her for like five years and it was just so nice. And, you know, but we, when we were at uni together, because we were living on campus, we were literally having dinner like every single day. So from that like intimacy to like going apart, living our lives, living different things. But then, yeah, as soon as we come back together again, it's like no time has passed. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love, I love those things. And I'm so glad that you explored that through the different friendships as well in the book. So we've already talked a little bit about, you know, your journey to publication. So it's time for my favorite in, question. <laughs> it's time for Caitlin's favorite question. I'll let you ask it, Caitlin. So my favorite question, um, because as I'm sure you know, Abigail, lots of people who work in publishing or in the book industry in various ways are writers and get published. And I always love to ask them what surprised you about actually being the author being published. Oh, um... <laughs> <laughs> All the drafts, maybe. <laughs> Uh, no, I was well aware of the drafts having kind of <laughs> countless books, but um, and edited countless books. But I think um, I think the transition from being in a complete being in complete solitude in your writing and it's your idea and it's your baby and it's your characters and it's your story and and it's yeah you're the only one who who knows and the only one who's working on it and then when you enter the process of being published it's published it's completely collaborative an agent and you have an editor and you have a cover designer and you have a sales team and you have all of these people around you that need different things from the book and that's hard because you lose control and I think that loss of control was difficult actually and I think having worked as an editor in-house commissioning books and having you know still to this day being an agent and indeed still editing it's it was difficult to take those hats off and just allow myself to be the author so yeah I found that I found that hard you know you've got to let go a bit and trust other people and let other people do their jobs and not try and do that job for them which I definitely tried to do and then I just had to be like you need to allow yourself the, pro- the the joy and the process of being just the author and not worrying about the agent bits not worrying about the editor bits not stressing about that because You've yeah. got people, you are you know. not your agent and you are not yeah. your editor. Yeah, exactly. And I had an amazing team in place, so it's just let them do that and allow yourself the the, the journey and the joy of just being the writer and the author. Um, so that was a that was a process for me, but I think I hope I got there in the end. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I was gonna I was gonna say it must have been very difficult for you to switch off that like the critical eye the editor experience and just be like because when you're so close to something as well it's super hard to edit your own writing you would know this working on other people's things so you know just to let yourself be guided and to trust that process 
is really difficult, I'm sure, for most people, but especially when they have like such intimate knowledge of the publishing industry. <laughs> like I knew yeah, that <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like when you when you don't know as much, you are like you're like, oh, I'll just this person's an expert. I'll just let them do it. But when you are usually that person, like it's really hard to switch that off and just exactly. trust them <laughs> and not, yeah, go over everything. Um so trying to find that joy in the publishing process then what do you think at the end of the day now the book's out there and and you you know are touring it and stuff what's been the joyful bit then what's the most joyful bit of publishing your own book definitely just having other people read it like having people reach out to you and say oh I read your book and I absolutely loved it or I love this character I love this storyline or grieving at the moment I read your book and it's been really helpful or I don't know like I, I've been through a similar experience as Matilda because I guess the thing that, that I haven't touched on in this particular conversation is the, the book is very dark and it deals with very heavy issues and themes and it's kind of it balances the light and dark it's it's hopefully and you know um funny in bits and then very very serious and dark in others and the kind of using the light and shade to navigate these these more heavy hitting topics so yeah, just the joy of someone having read your book. I mean, like we've discussed so much today, time is the most precious thing. And if someone's sat down and spent, a f- you know, several hours with your writing, that's the biggest joy ever. And I just have such gratitude for that, really. So thank you for reading the book. <laughs> yeah, pleasure. <laughs> oh, I've... That's amazing. I'm, I just I'm addicted we can to help. reading books, so it's nice to know. Yeah, it's nice to know that we're helping someone. <laughs> um, so, can we talk a little bit more about your work as an agent now? I'm I'm so curious. Like, how do you know when you start to read something that's been submitted to you that yes, this is a book that I I want to be the one that that gets this publishing deal, and yeah. I I want to see this become a real book. What are you looking for? I'm looking for somebody who's saying something different and something, you know, has ideas or a perspective or a voice on something that I've not seen before. Um, I think earlier on in my career, and, and, and indeed actually still today, but I do publish a lot of the most prominent and leading feminist voices here in the UK, and I'm known for doing that. So I see all of the feminist proposals and I do, you know, I get sent and submitted so many, which is great. But when that happens, you, it's like same, 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 same. And it's really hard yeah. to feel invigorated by something new or to go, oh my God, I've never read that before. I've never heard somebody put it like that before. Or, And I think that's the thing. I think we all have something unique to bring to a subject. We all have a different perspective. We've all had a different experience and journey. And we all have that kind of uh, je ne sais quoi, USP, whatever you want to call it. But I think some people often just stray into what's safe or what they think people will want to hear rather than going to the, I call it like the well, going into the well of yourself and like into the gut into the gore and I think from that comes your own individual magic and that's what I'm looking for on the page and that's what gets me excited to go oh my god I really want to represent this or I just find it so interesting because I don't think that I could do that like I love reading obviously and you know some books really and and Caitlin works in publishing as well yes just not in editorial (laughs) (laughs) positions or anything but like 
you know, we have um, an internal prize where I work and occasionally I'll read some of the submissions for that. And sometimes it's very easy to be like, this is boring or this is bad. But when something I'm like, well, this is kind of good, but I don't like, is it? I don't know. And then I say maybe like to the one of the publishers, I'm like, maybe read this one, but like, don't trust my opinion. Like, I don't know. I don't think I could do that. So I'm very interested in how people know, you know, you hear agents and publishers talk about and they go, oh, I got so excited and it was just like, something sparked off the page or whatever. And I'm just like, how? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Did it take you a while to to feel like you knew? And like like you said, like, Caitlin, you said, like, don't trust my opinion. Yeah. Abigail, did it take a while for you to be able to trust your own opinion of things? Like, because you have been working in the industry for so long. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely, definitely. That's a learned process that's something I think you can learn um it's something that I was taught by a great um publisher called Mike Jones who doesn't actually he works outside of publishing now as an editor but he really when I was a junior editorial assistant he really really encouraged me to find my own voice and kind of what's your opinion on this and it's like well I think maybe this and I think he's like no 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 thinking like no like pandering around it like (laughs) what do you feel what do you think like what's your voice what's your opinion like you are nothing as an editor you are worthless as an editor if you don't have a vision and you don't have a voice and you don't have like thoughts and you have to have them and you need to have them with conviction and you need to like trust yourself and your taste because you know, all agents and editors ultimately represent different books. That's why there's such a like, you know, like you were saying earlier, vampires and YA and cookery and kids and uh, sad girl lit or whatever. And there's, you know, everyone's got their own taste. It's about like honing that taste. It's about learning. It's about understanding it. It's about addressing it within the market, what within that arena is working and what's not, what are we responding to, why. So yeah, definitely. I completely, it took me a long time and like an existential crisis to even apply for an editorial role because I was just like, well, why would anyone care what I think? Like, I can't tell people what to write and what, I can't do that. Like, who the fuck am I to do that? Um, (laughs) And you know, I did, and I pushed myself, and I went for it. So one hundred percent, like it's yeah. it's thing that I've carved out and developed, and as I say, been trained to do. And now I really enjoy working with Junior. You know, my assistant at the moment, Grace. She's amazing, and she's got an eye, and it's really great to encourage her down that line and reaffirm her and give her that confidence in herself and watch her become um, more attuned to what it is she's looking for and what it is she likes and why. Wow, it sounds amazing. Like I'm just fascinated by it. You guys, um, as in agents, are incredible. The way that you can pick something and know that it's that it's going to be really good or that it's going to be really special, and then but not always. Know, it's every, every <laughs> agent has um, no agent sells everything they represent. You know, yeah. and gets excited Mm. about things and loves something and then is really really surprised when they can't sell it or even sometimes you're a bit like not really sure about this one to be not sure how this is going to go down it feels a bit weird and people go absolutely nuts for it and you're in the middle of a 14-way auction and you're like okay cool you know what I'm doing so it's it's a you know a lot of agents go through dry spells where they're like I haven't sold anything in six months and it's like you know freaking out working yeah I, I don't know you know so we're not like magical unicorns that have this <laughs> like, new ability to we're just 
human fallible people having a go and sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't yeah it is funny though hearing you talk about this has brought to mind the image of like in devil wears prada where she's sort of talking about how it trickles down to like that bargain basement that you bought your (laughs) jumper from i'm like your decision like trickles down to me and caitlin reading it being like oh my god this is amazing let's do it on our podcast like (laughs) i've never felt less like i know what i'm talking about when it comes to books hearing you say like you've got to have opinions and stuff i'm like do I have opinions? Oh my God, I don't. Oh my God, I don't think I could do that. <laughs> like that's the joy for me of reading still, just reading something and turning all of those things off in my brain and just being yeah. in the experience and just, you know, this, it doesn't have to, you don't have to. Yeah, as, as the reader, we just get to enjoy it after everyone else has done all the work. Yeah, exactly. Be indulgent, enjoy it, read it, throw it into the corner and never talk to anyone about it ever again. Like you have that <laughs> it's over what's the third page are there any books that you've read that you've been like oh damn I wish that I was representing that book like that is amazing book so many Emily Pine notes to self I'd give my left arm to have represented that I'm obsessed with Sheila Haiti although her career was well on the way way before I was in a position to sign or represent anyone I mean, yeah, there's so many writers out there that I love. Uh, Megan Nolan's Acts of Desperation, oh, Atesha Mosfeg. I mean, yeah, I'm in constant awe of other writers and what they can do. And there's always things that you miss and think, God, I wish I'd, you know, I'd done that quicker or I'd thought about that or I'd, I'd represented that book. But at, at the same time, I think you can get carried away with looking at what other people are doing. Publishing so small, specifically, well, it is small globally um, and every kind of different you know the uk is small ours is small you know and same yeah, even smaller <laughs> exactly yeah. you you know everyone and you know what everyone's doing and if you pay too much attention to that i think it's not healthy i think it's distracting and i've always had this like lone wolf blinker mentality like i'm just over here doing this and i'm doing my thing it doesn't matter what you're doing if i i don't need to focus on that you do and thrive and succeed and but I just need to be here focusing on what I'm doing because it's not healthy to be so involved and invested in what everyone else is doing and I think that is a mistake that a lot of editors and agents make and can get quite wrapped up in it and it creates insecurity and yeah. it just you don't need to just do do you you know yeah do your own thing and we probably couldn't have an agent on podcasts about books and writing without asking you for your like one tip for aspiring writers looking to get published I mean what one of the main one of the main things that I always say and it's a Naira Wahid quote and it's the thing that you are most afraid of write that and I think that is such an insightful piece of advice for emerging aspiring writers and for me again it comes back to that thing I said earlier about going to the well of yourself and going to your truth and going to the guts and the gore and seeing what is really there and I think especially with like first books you have to write what you know like my second novel is much more ambitious and much more challenging and I think with first books yeah writing what you know and and you have to write the thing that only you can write exactly that that would be my top tip can you give us any hints about book two at all yeah I guess so so it's set across two timelines it uh written in third person um and it's about sisters and it's a lot plot driven and it's yeah I can't really say any I can't say too much more than that (laughs) It's, it's almost sort of um, virgin suicide zeit, but zeitgeisty and more modern family complex drama. Love that. Sounds amazing. Yeah, 20,000 of the first draft. <laughs> so by the time I'm like writing the 
10th draft, it will probably be about vampire sisters who live in Olympia. I don't know what it will be by the time I've got to that. Well, we can't wait to see what it evolves into. Um, (laughs) Well, I'm sure you'll have plenty of time to keep writing and working on it before we ever get our hands on it. So, yes. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure, a fascinating discussion as always. Um, Took a lot of twists and turns, but we like that here. (laughs) So um, where can people find and follow you online? So you can follow me on Instagram. It's just Abigail Bergstrom. And also there you'll find a a link to the Bergstrom Studio Instagram where we offer kind of tips and guidance and advice for writers. And also you can find me at my Substack, Something to Say. Perfect for all the aspiring writers. And also we'll be checking out the Bergstrom Studio Instagram as well to see your upcoming authors and stuff to keep an eye on who's coming out who we should be reading as well um yes definitely yeah or have you do you want to just end on like have you got someone who or a couple of books that we should be looking out for um in terms of my writers uh Laura Bates has got a phenomenal book out at the moment called Fix the System Not the Women which is looking at the systemic roots of sexism and um oppression against women through media criminal justice service policing it's really getting to grips with how we can create tangible real change um, and away from this feminism and also I give a shout out to Florence Given whose debut novel is coming out Girl Crush which is phenomenal as well wonderful we will definitely be reading those we're Laura Bates fans so um, yeah that sounds incredible thank you again for joining us thank you for having me bye thank you for listening to Better Words you can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review. Mm-hmm.